Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Thanks, Brittany. Guys, how are we doing? Good. It's, uh, it's good to be with you guys. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Curry, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to take a second and pray for you. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over to Genesis 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some downstairs in the windowsills, and you're welcome to take that with you as you go today. Father, I'm really thankful that we get to <clears throat> stand together in a text that's so ancient but so powerful in describing the world around us. I pray that you would give us the guts today to have our eyes wide open as we look at just how devastating the result of sin is. I pray that you would help us to not rush to the beauty of the promise in this text before we sit in the ashes of what's happened. But I do pray, Lord, as we look at the darkness and the destruction of sin and the kingdom of darkness, that you would prepare our hearts today to receive with new joy, new hope, new courage, and new boldness, the gospel of Jesus. And uh, Father, I wanna ask specifically that men and women in the room that can hear chains rattling in their lives, I pray that today the power of the resurrected Jesus would break chains. Lord, bring, bring freedom. Jesus, you are good and uh, you don't lie. And you said it was for freedom that you came to set us free. So help us today. We, we need you. This is a really tough text. And uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher today, like we always do. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. 
Uh, I was remembering today the early days of Frontline Church when we used to do this collaborative Good Friday service with a bunch of other churches in the city. It was super fun. These were all churches that we loved. They're still churches that we love. And uh, we'd get together for Good Friday to celebrate the death of Jesus. And consistently with a bunch of the pastors and worship directors that would get together, uh, I would find myself in this place of good-natured conflict and debate about Good Friday. The thing that I kept feeling was that they wanted to Easter up Good Friday. And what I mean by that is that there were ways in which the current culture of evangelical Christianity in the West loves to skip ahead to the really good news of Jesus without sitting in the shadows of the bad news that we're told on Good Friday the weight of our sin, the cost of our redemption. And I I think that today in this room, there is a propensity in us to sort of turn the Bible into more of a sitcom than a drama that unfolds over thousands of years. And so today in Genesis chapter three, we're invited to sit in some things that are really hard to hear. We're invited to look at how the world's gone wrong. And not just how the world's gone wrong, how we've gone wrong and how we've contributed to the brokenness of the world. Last week, Chad Kinzer did an amazing job talking about sin and the consequences of sin on our relationship with God. How that relationship was fractured in sin and the devastation that resulted in that. Today, we get to take another step and we're going to look at the curse and the promise the curse and the promise. And what God's gonna show us in the text today is that we live in a world where the good gifts of God are still really sweet, but they're mixed with bitterness on the left and the right. And I want you to think for just a second about the first time as a kid where you came to the painful realization that even in the midst of how beautiful the world can be, that it's profoundly broken. One of the best things my mom and dad ever did for me was to move us to India when I was about seven or eight years old. We, we lived there for almost a year, and uh, India either gets in your blood or it doesn't. It, it got in my blood. I love India. One of the things that's so baffling about India, one of the things that I delight in when I'm there, is that everything in India, everything in India feels like it's turned up to 11 all the time sweetness and bitterness, beauty and ugliness. And in the house that we lived in, in our village, there was a slum right next door to our house. And I can still remember the faces of people that I got to do life with in that slum, people that in the midst of abject poverty and pain and suffering, who still received the good gifts of God, even though, that they, even though many of them didn't know that they were gifts that God had given them. I remember meeting ladies in the slums that with generosity in their hearts would give their babies their last bite of food even as they starved. I remember meeting dads in the slums that would go to work doing back-breaking labor to do whatever it takes to try to provide for their families. And in the midst of a lot of laughter and joy, even in poverty, I saw all kinds of things that were beautiful there. Beautiful, but I remember one day in particular where after two weeks of watching a litter of puppies, something happened that introduced me as a seven-year-old to just how broken the world is. I'd seen evil, I'd seen bad things happen, but one day after a couple of weeks of watching this litter of puppies, I I came home from a walk and uh, little boys in the slums 
had smashed the heads of all those puppies with rocks and had laid them out in front of our house. Now, I don't know what the motivation was. I don't know what the message was that they were sending to us. I don't know why they did that. I just knew in that moment that we live in a world that's really confusing. It's confusing because it can be so good and so beautiful, and it can be so savage and so brutal at the same time. And what God's going to tell us in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 21, is that there's many gifts that he's given humanity that get mixed with bitterness. The gift of children is mixed with pain. This is verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, this certainly relates to the physical agony of bringing a child into the world, but it's pain that goes beyond the simple pain of birth. Elizabeth Stone put it like this, to have a child is to decide forever to have your heart go walking outside your body. All parents understand what that feels like, but nobody understands what that feels like, like a mom. The good gift of children is mixed with not only physical suffering and pain, but it's mixed with the weight of sadness and fear and brokenness and loss and grief. In addition, we see that the good gift of marriage gets mixed with conflict. God says to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Some of your translations simply say that your desire shall be for your husband. Now, there's two strong possibilities about what that desire really means. Some commentators think that it's desire to subdue him. It's sort of an enmity with her husband that will result in her trying to figure out ways to either control or manipulate him. We find in Genesis chapter 4 that the same term for desire is used to describe sin's desire to subdue or master Cain. Another possibility is that maybe God's describing idolatrous desire, that there's ways in which even her daughters are going to be pulled into the temptation to point at Adam desires that only God can fulfill. Probably it's a bit of a combination of both. And then God says that tragically, he shall rule over her. This is not a description of God's good design for marriage as man and woman have different roles and responsibilities, but deep mutual respect and delight. This is a description of marriage due to sin getting pulled into exploitation and competition and strife. That the most intimate relationship that human beings can share, the covenant of marriage, is going to be mixed with things that are not beautiful. Things that reveal just how sinful we really are. Then God's going to speak to Adam and he's going to point out that the gift of work gets mixed with toil. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. A few weeks ago, we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that work existed before the fall, and that work was a good gift that God gave the man and the woman, that they were to use creativity and industry to fill the earth with the glory and beauty of God that they were designed to work, but before the fall, that work was to result in fruitfulness, and after the fall, we get on a treadmill of futility. 
That even on the best days of work, whatever your job is, you're going to bring your intellect and your heart and your hands and your sweat to your labor. And what's going to happen again and again and again is that the creation is going to push back against you and it's going to lead to frustration and futility and at times lack. You're going to plant seeds and sometimes those seeds are going to grow and sometimes those seeds are going to get choked out by thistles and thorns. And perhaps most painful of all of these gifts that get mixed with bitterness is that the gift of life gets mixed with death. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you were dust and to dust you shall return. Next week, Kevin Colley's going to talk about the plight of humanity east of Eden and the ways in which God meets us there with hope. For, for today, I'll just mention briefly that death becomes the great equalizer, that death hangs over the head of every human being and, and not to be morbid or depressing, but to simply say the truth that Westerners like to try to forget from the second that you're born, you're beginning to die. And no matter what you build, and no matter how educated you are, and no matter how much you study philosophy, no matter how much you give yourself to the desire to make the world a better place, all human beings, rich, poor, man, woman, have the impending disaster of death coming for every one of us. Now, in the midst of all of that bad news, there's something that's even more frightening. In the midst of all of that going wrong and all of those gifts getting mixed with all of that bitterness, God's going to point out that in the midst of Adam and Eve's treason against God, that not only did the created order fall, not only was our relationship with God fractured, but because of sin, Adam and Eve invited in the kingdom of darkness and the power of supernatural evil to have sway over the human race. Take your Bible and look at Genesis chapter three, starting in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is a bit dense. It's full of poetry and it's hard to understand. Let, let me just try to point out, first of all, that this is not Genesis being really concerned with herpetology. This is not God trying to help us make sense of why snakes are creepy and gross and don't have legs. What God's doing is using poetic language to describe the historic reality of the fall and its consequences. And to the original hearers of the book of Genesis, who were surrounded by ancient Near Eastern cultures, this language of the serpent would have brought to mind the idea of powerful beings that were described as chaos monsters, Beings that wanted to devour and destroy and gobble up goodness and beauty. And what we find in the story of Genesis is that Adam and Eve make this tragic trade in which the serpent, who the Bible's later going to describe as Satan, 
a powerful created being that fell in rebellion against God, that this being named Satan is going to whisper in the ears of Adam and Eve that the way in which they can maximize their potential, the way that they're going to find true joy and true freedom is by removing themselves from the authority of their creator so that they can be their own gods. Now, here's what's wild about this. What we saw in the beginning as we walk through Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that God created Adam and Eve to enjoy his benevolent authority, and then God entrusted to them profound authority over planet Earth. He made Adam and Eve to be a king and a queen so that them and their offspring would be vice regents under God to take dominion over the earth and to actually extend the good and beautiful authority of God in creation, they were given profound responsibility. And what the enemy does that's really ironic is he convinces them that the authority of God on their life is restrictive and limiting And the way to joy is to step out from under the authority of God. But in that moment when they believe the lie, here's what the tragedy really is. They actually fall under the tyrannical rule of an evil being that exists to destroy. They remove themselves from being under the authority of God and they place themselves in subjection and slavery to a dark being that actually wanted to deface them and destroy them and to defile everything that was good and beautiful. And the root of that subjugation was sin. And the Bible's going to be really clear that the problem with sin, first and foremost, is the fracturing of our relationship with God. It removes us from enjoying the very presence of God that we were made for, but it also brings us into bondage, into slavery, to the kingdom of darkness. This is so important if you're going to have a biblical worldview, Genesis chapter 26, or excuse me, Acts chapter 26, describes people walking in darkness under the power of Satan. Galatians chapter 1 talks about the power of this evil age, that the world lies in darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes Satan as the lower G God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 mentions the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians talks about about spiritual rulers and authorities that are at work in this age. And in the gospel of John, Jesus himself describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of the devil as having power of death and people being subject to lifelong slavery. And 1 John tells us that the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And in the book of Revelation, as John has this amazing vision of worship in heaven, Satan is depicted as a red dragon that's trying to deceive the nations and who wants to devour the Christ child. The point being, as Adam and Eve fell into bondage and sin, they didn't move into a place of neutrality. They moved to a place of profound slavery under the kingdom of darkness. Darkness. 
Brothers and sisters, evil, evil is real. Evil is cosmic. Evil is personal. And evil is powerful. And even in the last three weeks, as we've seen events unfold in the Middle East, we've been confronted again in ways that we'd rather not see that we live in a world where there are men who actually think that murdering babies and raping women brings them into obedience to God. Now, I don't want to lessen one bit human responsibility and culpability with evil. Human beings can carry out evil. Human beings are sinners by nature and choice. But what I want you to understand is that the Bible would tell us that there's also powerful powerful forces at work that we can't see that are at work on a huge societal scale to deceive and blind and at work on a personal individual level to enslave and to ensnare. And I understand that we live in a moment, we live in a moment where we've been so shaped by enlightenment rationality that we think all of this is mythological junk. But in the scope of world history, and if you open your eyes to what actually happens every single day, not just over oceans, but things that take place in our cities, to deny that reality doesn't make us wise, it makes us blind. Satan loves pulling the enlightenment wool over our eyes. In one of his classic books, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis gives us a fictional account of an older demon coaching a younger demon. Let me read one paragraph to you guys. The older demon advises his protege with this. I do not think that you'll have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in modern imagination will help you. And if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Hey, listen, Genesis chapter three as our origin story helps us to not just make sense of what's gone profoundly wrong in our own hearts, but it also offers us a real clear-eyed understanding of what's taking place in the world. Genesis chapter three tells us about how the world became enemy-occupied territory. Adam and Eve, who were given such responsibility over creation, handed the keys to the front door over to the evil one. Genesis chapter 3 invites us to see that with sobriety so that when God gives us this amazing promise in verse 15, you'll begin to grasp just how full and just how costly the gospel of Jesus really is. Here's the promise. Here's the promise. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the earliest preaching of the gospel. This is the seed that's gonna grow into the tree 
of God's redeeming work in Jesus. This is what the entirety of the Bible's about. And what God is telling us in the early pages of his word is that the work of the seed of the woman will be a divine confrontation with the serpent. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There are a few things that drive me more crazy than reducing Christmas morning to cuteness or sentimentality. Christmas has nothing to do with cuteness. It's not about cute Mary and cute baby Jesus so that we can all say, ah, isn't that sweet and exchange presents. Christmas is nothing less than the son of God slipping into human history in the dead of night quietly to establish a beachhead in Bethlehem for the liberation of his people. Christmas is an act of war. Christmas is D-Day. And none of that should lead us to then buy into the lie of dualism that sort of paints a picture of God and the devil as equal and opposed forces, and we're sort of just hoping that God wins in the end. No, no, no. Even in Jesus' earthly ministry, here's what we see at every turn. When he confronts the demonic, the demonic obeys him. Demons scream in terror. They run from Jesus. They recognize his authority. They see his power. He tells them to shut up, and they listen. But the thing about the coming of the seed of woman slipping in in the dead of night in weakness and frailty as a baby is that the work of God to confront the serpent will not be a work of shock and awe. It won't be a raw demonstration of his power and authority because here's the thing that's crazy. If God simply through power and majesty judge Satan without dealing with your sin and my sin, then you and I as slaves to the kingdom of darkness would be participants in that judgment. Why a baby? Why weakness? Why a cross? The greatest symbol of shame and horror in the ancient world. Why does Jesus ride into Bethlehem on a donkey and not a war horse? See, the victory of Jesus over the powers of darkness is is gonna be a victory that we would never see coming. It's gonna be victory through bruising. The very way in which he's gonna crush the head of the serpent is the mortal wound that he himself is going to receive. His bruising is gonna lead to the liberation of those that were in bondage, and we get a hint of it in the very first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Listen to this, Genesis chapter three, verse 21. Think of all the disaster, the treason, the rebellion, and then God does something that's a picture of the grace that he's gonna keep hanging meat on until the coming of Jesus. After Adam and Eve have sinned and they've realized their nakedness and their standing in shame before God, the Bible tells us that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. This is crazy. 
to the people that were the first recipients of the book of Genesis who were steeped in the sacrificial culture of Israel, this would have made them pay attention. Adam and Eve sinned, and instead of giving them everything that they deserved all at once, God gives them something that they don't deserve. He sheds the blood of an animal, and he covers their nakedness with its skins. This is, in the early pages of Genesis, going to be a theme that gets fleshed out to the entirety of the Old Testament. Where there is sin, blood is required. And in the midst of the nakedness before God that we all stand in due to our rebellion that leads to shame, only God can make a covering. And what we find in the work of Jesus is that Jesus is bruising as he does battle with the serpent. As he bears our sin and bears our shame, he becomes the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain to cover us, to remove from us our iniquity, to pay the penalty for our sins, and in so doing, to strip the kingdom of darkness of its authority over our lives. Listen to Colossians chapter two, starting in verse 13. And you, this is you and me, you, all of us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the fullness of time, the seed of the woman born from Mary goes to a Roman cross. And on that cross, the Bible tells us that he that knew no sin became sin. And what we tend to do is make that just sort of generic and general. It's like, oh yeah, he bore the general sin of idolatry and the general sin of hatred and the general sin of lust. But here's what's so wild about it. The way in which Jesus spoils the works of the devil is that he doesn't just bear general generic sin. He actually bears the specific crimes against God and one another that I have committed the skeletons in your closet and the skeletons in my closet, the dirt we've done, the things that we don't want to be brought out into the light of day, that gets nailed to the cross. Jesus bears all that and in the pouring out of his blood, he makes atonement. He receives the wrath we deserve and in so doing, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He bears our sin and he grants us his righteousness and in that moment, the authority of Satan as the accuser is thrown overboard. Satan loses his right to claim that we belong to him. Here's how Luther put it. Sometimes you got to go to the old school guys to break out the big bullets. Luther nails it. In his commentary on Colossians, he writes this, Jesus kills my sin. He destroys my death in his body. And in this way, he empties hell. 
judges the devil, crucifies him, throws him down into hell. In other words, everything that once used to torment and oppress me, Christ set aside. He has disarmed it and made a public example of it by triumphing over it in himself. In his institutes, Calvin adds these words as we continue to experience spiritual warfare after meeting Jesus. He says, since we must acquire victory through Christ, God declares to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 in general terms that the woman's offspring is to prevail over the devil. And part of the believer's knowledge of God recognizes that even though unclean spirits may combat believers, ambush them, invade their peace, beset them in combat, and also very often wary them, rout them, terrify them, and sometimes wound them, yet they will never vanquish or crush them. Christ has humbled Satan, crushed his head, and assures his elect of their victory in the end. Here's what Satan loves to do in the life of the believer. He loves to whisper the same kind of lie that he whispered to Adam and Eve, that joy and beauty is found in the illusion of autonomy. God's authority is not for you. God's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. Look how delicious the fruit is. Look at all the ways you can break God's commands, and it's going to result in more joy and a deeper life and better relationship. If you just go outside of God's restriction, won't you be free and won't you be alive? And then we take the bait. We take the bait. And he switches from the father of lies, the accuser, to his other dark and wicked role. And he starts to testify against us. You violated the law of God. You stand condemned. You're a wretched sinner. You can't be forgiven. You have no hope. You deserve the judgment of God. From one side of his mouth, he tries to make sin look delightful. And then from the other side of his mouth, he twists the commands of God into condemnation and law, forgetting the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law. That he paid the penalty for our breaking of the law. And the only hope that we have to stand against the forces of darkness, and, and I mean, you can live your life if you want, like a tourist in a war zone pretending that it's not real. And just have those few moments in life where you're confronted with evil being personal and malevolent and powerful, and you can sweep that under the rug as just like bad vibes if you want. But in the midst of putting your head in the sand, you miss the height and the depth of what God has provided for you in Jesus, which is not just the overthrow of your sin, but it's also in the overthrow of your sin, the overthrow of the kingdom of darkness. That in his victory, we get to stand. And in his victory, we get to push back against the kingdom of darkness with the truth that Jesus has done everything and we've accomplished nothing and we stand on his finished work. So when the devil comes to accuse us and use the law to hammer us away from God, we can remind him that, yeah, hey, that sin and others have I committed. 
And yeah, I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve hell. I was a part of your kingdom. But Jesus Christ, thanks be to him, he bore that on a tree. He paid not just generally for sins, but he paid specifically for that sin. And in that place of boasting in the finished work of Jesus, we get to do war with the kingdom of darkness and war with temptation, and we get to stand on a victory that we never could have won if we had a thousand years to try. As we close today, come to the Lord's Supper. My prayer is that you would be amazed that God didn't leave us in Genesis chapter 3. Hey, like realize he didn't owe us anything. He, he didn't have his hands tied behind his back. He could have completely exercised his holiness and his justice by abandoning us to the kingdom of darkness or giving us everything we deserved. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus And now, to be in Jesus, Romans 8 tells us, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He's paid the price for you and for me to get to stand in hope and confidence that God's going to finish the good things he started in us.